Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Today's episode of A Little Wiser is brought to you by All the Happier. All the Happier is an online digital course and platform rooted in the science of positive psychology, paired with inspirational human stories like the ones you hear on this podcast. We talk about happiness. We also talk about connection, conversations, and hard things. Our intent is to give people new tools to show up in the big and small moments of life. This week's episode of A Little Wiser is, I would say, a really hard conversation about last week's episode with Sue Klebold, the mother of Dylan Klebold, who was one of the two shooters at Columbine High School. So first of all, hi, Christy. Hey, Kimmy. I feel like this episode really struck a chord with people. Would you agree? Yes, 100%. I have had a number of conversations with friends. Even on our walk yesterday, we spent the entire time talking about this episode. And why do you think it struck a chord? It's interesting because I was listening to it and I honestly had like a pit in my stomach during the entire time Uh of listening to the interview. I had a pit in my stomach for her, for Sue Klebold. I had one for you. I had one for me thinking about that day. Then I had one for the kids, like just all around. So I do think many people who are our age and younger and older, but they, we remember, it was one of the, it was the first one, wasn't it? Yeah, pretty much. They say that the shootings that followed, it sort of created this momentum and mimicking and the copying of what happened in Columbine. So people largely remember it as there were some shootings before that, but that sort of marked the time where it became commonplace. It was a really powerful conversation though, Kimmy, but boy, from the listener's perspective, it was It really was just a powerful conversation that had me thinking so many different ways. Well, I went into it and, you know, there's some connecting of the dots for me, which we can talk about, but I went into it with deep compassion for her. And I kept hanging on to this fact of like the mother who was forbidden to grieve. Yes. That at that time, there was such sort of rage and visceral anger and, you know, hate and blame and all these things that I think were really in fairness, natural emotions for people to have. You know, children had just been killed and teachers, but that her grief, there was sort of no room for it. And in fact, you know, she had lost her youngest son and come to the realization, obviously, that, you know, he was homicidal and suicidal and had taken the lives of 12 people all on one day. Mm. So I kept thinking about like compassion going into the conversation, but it was also really hard because it's so fragile. You know, I didn't Mm -hmm. know if I would ask something that would be offensive or overstepping or overreaching. I mean, you know, it's so funny. I, I totally get that because even as we're talking about it right now and even leading up to this conversation, I feel kind of like slippery around it as well. Like I'm not quite sure what words to use and how to talk about it and which of the themes to pull out because it, it's just a really uh, difficult subject. So I can totally appreciate why going into that, having that conversation, how tricky that was to prepare for it. Yeah, it was. 
I know because we were friends at the time that you were actually there and also reading it about it in your newsletter. I would love to hear a little bit more about your side of the experience that day. Yeah. So it was about three or four weeks before graduating from Boulder. I went to see you Boulder and I was a journalism student. And my professor, Vicky Sama, had been one of the sort of first producers at CNN and left to become a professor at Boulder. So we were part of a CNN student bureau. They had, you know, different college campuses and they could cover stories and submit them. So Vicky came in the class and said, there's a hostage situation, which is what I remember the initial understanding or language around what was happening. And that people were flying in from Atlanta and all the national media was coming, but they wanted people to get there as quickly as possible. So she asked three of us to hop in the car and go to Littleton, Colorado, which is where Columbine High School was. Mm -hmm. So we arrived and what I initially remember is being on a lawn at an elementary school. And it was the gathering place where they were directing all of the parents to get information on their children. And you have to think about this information is, are they alive? Mm. And the pain and weight and sea of emotion, I really don't, you know, I remember talking to people like from a journalistic viewpoint, I remember getting the yearbooks and you know people were trying to identify people. I just remember being in this sea of grief and chaos and shock, right? Complete and utter shock. Mm-hmm. And my job really I I guess it for just a few hours was to be a journalist. So we were, you know, trying to talk with anybody who had information on what was unfolding, but at the same time, I think I'm such an empathetic sort of emotional person. I found myself, you know, in conversations with these parents. There's really no words to explain what the experience of something like that unfolding and you are standing with the parents who are waiting and have no knowledge if their children are alive. I mean, it was just heartbreaking. As you're talking, the sort of pit in my stomach and the feeling, I just, it's, thinking about it now as a parent and even thinking about it then and how I, how I remember feeling reading about it, it sounds like the energy was just palatable. Yes. I mean, unspeakable. Yeah. We quickly shifted over, for lack of a better word, the real journalists came from all over the world. And I was asked to stay on as an intern. We were working crazy hours, as you can imagine. And it was really just supporting people, getting them coffee and food. And Did you stay put in Littleton? Yes. So I stayed beyond that day and interned. You know, I remember when, as the days moved forward, obviously things were sort of being crystallized as to, you know, what happened and people were trying to piece things together And then all of the journalists and the media were moved to a lawn, the lawn actually sort of of Columbine or looking directly at the high school. And I remember the Red Cross being set up for people, including the media who were there. I guess I was more thinking from an emotional side of things. Like, you know, as you're going through this experience, do you remember, was it the busyness that kept your brain occupied or like, how was that experience for you? You know, it's funny, Christy, because there's pieces of this. While this is such like seared in my brain, there's a lot of pieces that I don't remember. Like you could Mm. ask me a lot of questions. I remember that lawn. I remember the two lawns. I remember the lawn with the waiting parents. And then I remember being on the lawn 
looking at Columbine for several days, but there's lots of pieces like, where did we stay? And so I wonder if, you know, when you go through something traumatic that your brain shuts down certain pieces, you know. Mm -hmm. Did you stay in touch with the people you were with from your class, other students, anybody you met during the time? No, you know, I, I didn't. And it was really interesting because obviously it's 22 years later. I'm 45 years old and I end up having a conversation with Sue Klebold, who is obviously, sadly, at the heart of that moment in history. And we were in that same town on that same day, obviously vastly different experiences. So it was a little bit to me of like a full circle or connecting my past with my present. And so I did your question about staying in touch with people. The professor who asked me to go, I had stayed in touch with her early on in my career. I think because of this, I felt sort of tethered or tied to her, but we Mm -hmm. lost track of one another probably about 15 years ago, if not more. And so I tracked her down as a result of doing this interview and forwarded her the episode and the newsletter I wrote. She's now the head of the journalism school at Humboldt. And we just have had this incredible email exchange, you know, five paragraphs long about that day and sort of, you know, reflecting on it. I love that. And I didn't bring it up in the interview with Sue and my professor asked me why I didn't. She said I was curious. And I just feel like in general in these interviews that it's not about me. It actually has nothing to do with me. And um, maybe also I was a little, I don't know why I was afraid to bring it up, but yeah, I just, it didn't feel right. Mm. Didn't feel right. Good. I think you, as you said that, it reminded me of a family rule we have of you only share your own story because somebody else's story is not your story to tell. So maybe maybe that was your intuition that you were there to interview Sue and this was her story and her story to tell. Yeah, it was. And um, I also know that Sue doesn't readily give a lot of interviews. Is that right? She was so incredible to listen to. And she's brave and courageous, by the way, every time she does an interview. She said it in our interview. She's like, some people will be offended by the fact that I'm even talking or that yes. you're giving me a platform to talk. Yes. So, I thought I that I noticed that too. Mm-hmm. And you can tell she's almost still that like theme of you can't grieve. You're on the wrong side. You're on the dark side. You don't have a voice in this conversation, but she really does. And her voice, you know, matters deeply. And I think that's part of what we want to talk about a little bit today, more just in and us sharing our takeaways and what really resonated. And I think it sort of also speaks to what we've been hearing from other people. So I'm curious for you when it comes to lessons and takeaways, and you're a parent of three girls, what stuck out to you? I think the part that really hit me as a role of a parent and the place that discomfort plays in how I parent my kids. I think when the kids were younger, I was all about this idea of of letting them struggle, letting them kind of learn through, I don't want to say hardship, but like there was the physical element of it. Like you forgot your sweater at school. Well, that's okay. You'll ha- you'll experience a little discomfort of being cold and you'll remember it next time. Like that was easier for me to lean into. But the part that I find more challenging is this whole idea of how do you build emotional resilience? And when I see my kids emotionally struggle, I find it very challenging not to want to swoop in and make everything okay. So when she was talking and she said, 
you know, we want to do everything we can to help them, but really what we need to do is just to shut up and listen. I think she said that twice, actually, just shut up and listen, and that we can't be frightened by their answer. That really stuck with me. Yeah, you know, it's this notion of sitting in the discomfort, right, which is really hard as human beings to sit in the discomfort. She talked about it again and again, right, about trying to just fix it or explain it rather than sitting with him, right, and allowing him to feel the feelings, which obviously for him were so, so deeply you know, he was suffering mm-hmm. on a level that is probably, I mean, I think just hard to wrap your head around how much pain you have to be in to take those actions. Yeah. But it's not easy. I think as, well, of course it's not easy. That feels like a trite statement when we're talking about this, but I see it is difficult on two levels. One, it's hard to see your child be in pain and not want to fix it. And then it's also challenging to manage your own discomfort at seeing your child in pain. So sometimes I wonder if I'm so quick to want to move my kids into a better emotional space through like, let me offer you a different perspective on that, or let's reframe that to a more positive experience or whatever it is. I'm doing it for them. And, and here's the point that I've really been thinking a lot about. I think I'm doing it for me that I don't like to be uncomfortable and have those feelings of sadness or that my child may be struggling or she doesn't belong or things aren't moving along as quickly as she would like. So it's like, there's like these two different levels that I've been thinking about this idea of how important it is to allow children to have that emotional discomfort so that they then can build those resiliency skills. And that maybe I need to actually practice that myself. (laughs) I think also things can seem from our adult perspective, trivial, right? Because you're like, ah, I went through this. It's fine. And I think Mm. her point is their pain is real and it needs to be seen and heard. And it's a really powerful message and it couldn't be more needed at this moment. So I am really grateful that Sue is brave enough to tell her story and to tell it right now because I think she educates and informs parents of how to show up differently. And also to your point, sometimes the best thing is the hard thing. And for these parents to sit next to a child in pain and just listen and not fix is hard. Yes, 100%. (laughs) Yes. I guess this is backtracking from the lesson a little bit, but was it me or can you still hear the incredible weight and pain in her voice 22 years later? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yes, absolutely. You can hear it in her voice in the words that she chooses. There's like this mix of, oh, just a weight of emotion and bravery and, you know, wanting to to have this conversation nonetheless, even though it, it can be hard. And I just can only imagine that when she is doing these interviews that yeah. she then goes back and re-experiences a lot of those feelings again. You can also hear caution in her voice. Like, mm-hmm. I think she she still feels that she needs to be incredibly precise and careful and not always, right? That's well said. I think it is. You could hear a preciseness and a carefulness yeah. about the words that she chooses. Yeah. Because it's fraught. This whole thing is very fraught. Yeah. And I'm curious, you know, I know you've talked to friends and people in your life have reached out. What do you think is, I keep saying cord, but when we all of a sudden something, you know, a story is shared like this and all of a sudden everyone is sort of reacting or reaching out, it's because it is in fact struck a chord with people. So what are you hearing from people about sort of what 
resonated or how it made them think differently. So the conversation I was talking with a friend yesterday about was there's like two pieces. The first is how do you help your child when you don't know that they need help? So there's this like sort of urgency in our conversation of like, oh gosh, we don't want to miss something and we want to be of service or we want to support our kid. But what if we don't know that they need help? Because she did mention that several times. You know, she said they were so in tune with Dylan that they noticed a change in his tone of voice, I want to say it was, and yet they didn't understand what was, you know, the actions he was about to take. So there's that piece, I don't know what to call it, but there's like this, oh God, you know, as a parent, how do we help our kids if we're not sure that they need help? Yeah, because her message is really about children suffering because her son was suffering deeply and, you know, we all know how things unfolded from there. So it sounds like Both of our takeaways were this idea of sitting in discomfort and allowing them to feel the feeling. I think there's also, so to me, this idea of like sitting and just listening and after the pause, there's the action of how do you support your kid? Yes, yes. And sort of the quieting and the mind and the house to really get in tuned because, you know, as she said, they deeply love Dylan and they thought that he was doing okay. And the disparity between their experience of Dylan and Dylan's internal world were miles and miles apart. And so she she goes back to this idea that, oh, I love my kids, you know, that sometimes that that love is not enough, that getting curious and quieting the mind and really listening because they need help from you and, you know, they need help from people outside of the home often. Certainly he did. And I think in hindsight, she obviously has deep, deep regrets that they weren't able to tune into that and give him the help he needs, not only, you know, in their house, but getting him the support outside of the house, because that could have changed history, frankly. Yeah. So... Well, it was a hard episode, but sometimes hard conversations can be really good and needed and impactful. And I think I would categorize this hard conversation as as one that is needed and impactful. So I hope for anyone who hasn't listened, you go back and listen to Sue. And Christy, thank you as always for joining me and making these conversations, I don't know, easier for me and I think hopefully richer and more meaningful for everyone who listens. Thanks, Kimmy. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.